The Positive Podcast, a one-hour show to bring joy, balance, and happiness to you and to negate the negativity in your life. Hello world, here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome once again to the Positude Podcast. My name is Ira Robinson. As always, we're here with Maggie Hart. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Ira. How are you this week? Ah, it has been a heck of a week, but I am here. (laughs) (laughs) So Crystal had a birthday. Happy belated birthday, Crystal. Indeed, yes. Her birthday was on Monday. She's My baby is now 14 years old. I'm so sad. (laughs) My gosh, it goes so quick, doesn't it? It really does. Okay, so jumping right into Sunny Stories. This one, uh, I know it didn't hit a lot in mainstream media. I'm sure you heard about it, but I thought it was worth mentioning because I think people need to be aware of this. The Maryland High School shooting. Did you hear about that one? I'm sure you did. I did, yeah. Okay, so that's what this article is about. A shooting this morning at a Great Great Mills High School in Great Mills, Maryland has left the alleged shooter dead and two other students injured, according to the St. Mary County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Tim Cameron said the alleged gunman, 17-year-old Austin Wyatt Rollins, shot a 16-year-old female male student and a 14-year-old male student with a handgun. This is something that we train, practice, and in reality we hope would never come to fruition. This is our worst nightmare, Cameron said. There is indication that a prior relationship existed between the shooter and female victim. We're working to determine if that was part of the motive for the shooting. So it goes on to say, a hero has emerged in the wake of the incident. The school's resource officer, Deputy Blaine Gaskill, is being hailed a true hero for saving the lives of the students in the school. Sheriff Cameron confirmed that Gaskill immediately responded and engaged the shooter. He was unharmed and he responded exactly as we train our personnel to respond, Cameron said of the SRO. In the aftermath of this, he's doing well and we're going to do everything we can to support and promote him in his well-being. These are children. I'm sure that weighs on his mind. This is the way it should have been handled, another Maryland official added of Gaskell's courageous actions. This is a tough guy who apparently closed in very quickly. While it's still tragic, he may have saved other people's lives. So, um, you know... (laughs) How do we even broach that, uh, the whole gun control issue that's gone rampant in our country? Here is an example of a gentleman who did have a handgun, who was able to prevent what could have been a much more tragic ending to the story by stepping in and helping these children. What do you think? Well, I know what you think. Yeah, <laughs> well... I guess I could just put it this way, you know, as far as all the um, the chaos that we're seeing happening with with um, the marches and all that kind of stuff that's going on with all of this. Um, there there are two things that that really come to my mind with it all. Um, the first one is that I really see these kids getting used. You know, the, this is they're 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 being focused so that they can get used for an agenda that's been in the works for a very long period of time. But the second thing that I'll say is um, when the first amendment is used to try to remove the second amendment, 
the First Amendment's going to quickly fall to the wayside because the only thing that's protecting that First Amendment in place is that Second Amendment. So it's very it's a very slippery slope that people are trying to take when it comes to this whole gun control thing. We need to be very cautious with it. And uh, knee-jerk reactions and that kind of thing are not going to uh, resolve the issue in any way. Right, and we won't even broach the, well, we will broach the subject. You know, all of the people that are celebrity status that are crying and screaming about gun control all have armed personal security All with of their, their armed, own. right, all with their armed guards <laughs> yeah. surrounding them. Yeah, I know, it's, so I, it's the height of irony. You know, it can't be, it, it, it's got to be one way or the other. It can't be, you know, kind of a, a, a fuzzy line. Yeah. You know, if you're going to support something, then support it wholeheartedly and you know, you yourself need to be uh, a part of that movement in that, well, then get rid of your security, get rid of your armed guards, uh, you know, get rid of the gates that are surrounding your multi-million dollar home. Right. Bring those people into your home. Exactly. Bring those people into your home, right? So I won't go into any more of that. Uh, we know where we stand here, uh, personally speaking. I just thought that it would be a good example to share with those people that are totally against uh, you know, having armed guards. And, you know, again, I, I'm a total advocate for, I feel that a lot of our schools could be made more safer. Not necessarily, I can understand from the teacher's point of view. I know a lot of school teachers. I understand the fact that they don't want to have to carry pistols and handguns into the classroom to, to protect their students. You know, these are housewives. These are women with children. They may have never had experience with a handgun before. They might not be comfortable having weapons in their school environment, you know, in their classrooms particularly. However, you know, we have so many unemployed veterans in our country and retired police officers and retired security guys that would jump at the chance to have a secondary career after they retire or even a purpose after they come back from the military when they're struggling to find jobs. These are guys that are homeless, that are struggling to make a living, that are struggling to deal with the whole coming back to the United States, reintegrating in society. If we get these guys trained properly and put into a program where they're, they're going to be very beneficial members of our society, very, very compassionate uh, for causes like this and saving children. There are so many organizations out there now that are being founded and being very successful uh, by veterans who are doing things like this, who are protecting our children against things like pedophilia, to be able to give them a worthwhile cause and put them in a situation such as this to guard our children at these schools. I would think that would be a much more beneficial solution. It absolutely would, yes. And that's something I've been advocating myself for a really long time now, even before all this stuff began. Yeah, so how we go? We, we won't, like I said, we could spend an hour on that. But yes, definitely. <laughs> going, to, going to Seeds of Hope. Okay, this one is a very depressing story, um, but I chose to share it because working with a lot of children that, um, you know, are doing drugs, you know, we're trying to get them off of the drugs, uh, into a rehab, into counseling. Um, these children are very young, and uh, a lot of the children that, that I work with particularly 
um, you know, they get involved in these activities from a, a, a very early age, you know, and uh, the kids that I work with just specifically, um, the ones that I've had interaction with the last couple of months are children who come from very affluent homes and, but they, but they're very broken. You know, they didn't have a two parent household where they, they were raised with strong family values, uh, strong morals. Basically, they were raised in an avenue where if they wanted to do something, their parents would give them the money to allow them to go, you know, with their friends, sometimes on trips alone, um, enable them to have the money to spend to go out to clubs all night at 15, 16 years of age. But there wasn't any parental supervision. It was always a matter of here, here's some money, go do what you want, and then the child would be out of their hair. I think that it's important to share this story because it is very, very upsetting, but hopefully it will help anybody out there that's struggling with it to to give them hope, to have them understand that, that you can change your life around. You can, there's always hope. Okay. So Kaylee Muffart was only 19 years old when her life changed forever in a terrifying turn of events after getting addicted to meth. The young girl told Cosmopolitan magazine that she had been a straight A student in Anderson, South Carolina before her life began to spiral out of control, ultimately leading her to claw out her own eyeballs next to a church while hallucinating on meth. She said she did this because she thought she was sacrificing herself for the world. Just the day before, she had agreed to her mother's desperate pleas to enter rehab, but instead she brought drugs, forever causing her to now live in darkness, completely blind. Muthart recounted those horrifying moments in great detail to Cosmopolitan magazine as a cautionary tale for others about how her life went from National Honor Society to recreational drinking and drug abuse to hitting rock bottom. And there is some graphic material that's contained in the, in the pictures and the videos, which I'm not going to share. You can look up her story and, and check it out if you'd like to as well, but I don't want to contribute to you know the graphic contact at least. Thinking the friends I'd gotten high with had gone to church, I wandered there along a railroad track. Even though it was 10.30 in the morning, everything was dark and gloomy apart from a light post where I thought a white bird was perched. It was then I remember thinking that someone had to sacrifice something important to right the world, and that person was me. I thought everything would end abruptly and everyone would die if I didn't tear my eyes out immediately. I don't know how I came to that conclusion, but I felt it was, without doubt, the right, rational thing to do immediately. I got on my hands and knees, pounded the ground, and praying, why me? Why do I have to do this? I later realized this wasn't a personal religious calling. It was something anyone on drugs could have experienced. Next, a man I'd been staying with, who happened to have a biblical name, drove by and called out the window. I locked up the house. Do you have the other key? A sign, I thought, that my sacrifice is the key to saving the world. How delusional, right? So I pushed my thumb, pointer, and middle finger into each eye. I gripped each eyeball, twisted and pulled until each eye popped out of the socket. It felt like a massive struggle, the hardest thing I ever had to do. Because I could no longer see, I don't know if there was blood, but I know the drugs numbed the pain. Mohar added that she believed she would have tried to claw right to her brain if a pastor hadn't heard her screaming, I want to see the light, before restraining her. He later told her that when he found her, she was holding her eyeballs in her hands. I had squished them, although they were somehow still attached to my head, she recalled of what he had said. When Muthart woke up in the hospital two days after the ordeal, she said everything was dark, 
and I knew I was blind, but when I sensed my mom by my side, I knew I would be okay. A week later, she was transferred to a psychiatric inpatient treatment facility where she said, with the help of therapy, she learned to start accepting her new reality. A determined mother said that despite being blind, she still has plans to attend school to become a marine biologist. Of course, there are times when I get really upset about my situation, particularly on nights when I can't fall asleep. But truthfully, I'm happier now than I was before all of this happened, she told the magazine. I'd rather be blind than dependent on drugs. It took losing my sight to get me back on the right path, but from the bottom of my heart, I'm so glad I'm here. What say you to that one? Uh, quite frankly, I could not listen to all of it because anytime that I hear about things happening to somebody's eyes, it totally freaks me out. It's like absolutely a, uh, a phobia of mine because of the way that my vision is. I'm always afraid of something happening to my eyes, especially with them like coming out because I have so much pressure in them and stuff. It freaks me out to say the least, but I will say, uh, this is why you don't do drugs. This is why it's not a good idea. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm telling you, drugs will make you do some really crazy things. That is for sure. Um, I know I, I, from my own personal experience, there were times when, um, I did it, you know, and, and, uh, in my younger days and, um, I'm surprised that I survived, you know, I'm surprised that I came back. I, I, for example, um, there was one incident that I ended up doing eight hits of really bad acid and, uh, the trip that ended up happening with it was, um, the last time that I did acid. I'm surprised that I actually came back from that particular trip. Uh, I was running around thinking that every blade of grass was dragon, uh, was a dragon that was breathing fire at my feet. And I was trying to save everybody around me from, uh, from dying by these dragons. I mean, it's just... It's insane what ends up happening to you, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the delusional uh, aspect of it when you engage in stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, working with kids like this, you know, it's really a shame because, in my opinion, and you can attest to that because you had the same type of childhood, um, only you weren't as affluent as some of the kids that I'm working with now. You know, you had you come from a broken home. You had parents that were always in conflict, parents that were fighting. You didn't have... The up, you know, the the upbringing, and you know, you didn't have the values instilled from you as a small child to teach you necessarily right from wrong. I think in your instance, um, it was more of a matter of almost religious fanaticism that turned you the other way. It was, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, we all have reasons. I we guess you know for getting involved in things like this. We all have, uh, you know, and here she is trying to justify what she thought her message was because of the delusional qualities of the drugs doesn't go into how much of her childhood, uh, what her child was about, but it does say that her mom at least was by her side when all this happened and helped her to work through it. You know, it's not my thing to judge anybody, but in my experience, what I see when I see these kids getting involved in things like this is, is it's always from a broken home, Right. Uh, I would say probably 95% of the cases that I work with is their children from broken homes or their children from homes like yours where it was a militant kind of religious background to where they just totally went to the other side. You know, right. Mine, of, right. Mine was definitely the pendulum swinging the other direction in rebellion, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That was one of the reasons why I sought it out to begin with. And then I got addicted to it all and just sort of spiraled from there. There you go. 
So anything that we can do to help our kids, you know, if you see, if you, if you witness, if you have friends that are, that are in this type of situation, please get them to seek help, get them to a rehab, talk to them, talk to them, be involved in their lives, let yeah. them know that you care and get them the help that they need before something tragic like this happens. How many of these kids are high on these drugs? I mean, we won't even go into all the challenges that are out there and, you know, the tie pod and all that. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, get them help, be involved, <laughs> try and get them into a rehab, be a support group for them. That's the best thing that you can do is, you know, get involved and try and help them. Do whatever that you can. Be a friend. Try and get them involved in a rehab program, a hotline even, anything that you can do. And then, you know, if you if you get to that point and you've spent time with a person and they're not going to change, then unfortunately what we're taught in our ministry is there are so many others out there that do need the help that will listen to you. Try and help that other person, you know, but keep going. Don't give up. Don't get frustrated when... It doesn't work for you one time. You know what I'm saying? Keep trying. Keep that guy, that guy or that child might not be willing or open to what you have to say. So go on to the next person, you know, try and help the next person that you can in line that you hear about, or, you know, maybe as another friend of yours, you know, you may have several friends that are involved in the same type of activity. Right. Exactly. Don't give up. Yep. You know, because one word of understanding, one word of encouragement one word of support can make the entire difference as to whether or not that person goes home and gets high and kills themselves or is suicidal and depressive and goes home and kills themselves or, or possibly hurts themselves and their family, right? Bullying across the country. That's another thing going into the whole gun control. If we had more of a grasp on raising these children with family values and embracing these children and caring about them and spending the time that we need with them and, combat the bullying that's going on in our schools. You know, we've got kids that are out here doing rallies about gun control, but yet how many videos are out there on Facebook where the same types of children are filming kids being beaten up in school, kids being bullied, and they're sitting there filming that. They're not doing anything to step in. That's the whole, to me, that just blows my mind. You're out here marching for gun control because you're following the whole sheet movement. But what are you doing when you're seeing a fight in school? You're taping it and putting it on Facebook and laughing about it? Right, exactly. And also, you know, one thing to bear in mind, statistically speaking, is that over 4,500 kids every year commit suicide based upon being bullied, directly attributable to being bullied. So, you know, and, and yet and there's no marches in the streets for that. Psychologically, they're going to be more inclined to go out and get a, get a gun illegally, yep. right? So, you know, it, it's not a legal thing. You know, criminals do not <laughs> buy guns legally. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. But these are the kind of kids that are emotionally traumatized that are more prone to do something like this. Right. Yep. You know, they've been bullied for five years at their school. They're going to go get a gun or get a knife and they're going to hurt those people that have hurt them. Yep. They've had enough. Right. Yeah. Work with your children. Be involved in your children's lives. Be involved in your friends' lives. Please. Positive phenomena. This one I thought was very cool. Uh, you know, we don't think of dispatchers as heroes, but that nice Jeff was mine is this lady's story. There is still goodness in the world, goodness in people that comes when you least expect it. As you've learned by now, my young, vibrant, strong husband died of pancreatic cancer almost two years ago. What you may not know is how sudden the onset of death was. I know that pancreatic cancer and a quick death often go hand in hand, but in Chad's case, that wasn't really how it went. 
he was diagnosed, had surgery, returned to work, and then went through months of chemo. For a while after treatment, they couldn't find a trace of the cancer. No tumors, no problems with his blood test. There was a period of time where I actually thought we dodged the inevitable. I was full of hope until the cancer returned. When they first noticed it again, it was in his liver. He would die six months later, but in the meantime, he continued to fight. She goes on to say that he continued to work and he continued to stay as normal as possible. My grief was complicated. I was confused. One minute he appeared to be fine and the next he wasn't. In a matter of days, I went from safely planning our future again to wondering if we had one. I didn't understand what was going on and I don't think he did either. His cancer was a monster. It was a thief, a vicious, ugly, imposing thief. He never called in sick, ever. In fact, before his diagnosis, he had not called in sick for seven years and only left work long enough to have surgery out of state. He didn't call in sick for chemo. He didn't call in sick when his cancer came back. He didn't call in sick when the cancer moved throughout his body. So when he came home early from work one night because he couldn't handle the pain, I knew something was terribly wrong. I wanted so badly to be wrong, but I knew. He knew. Within weeks, his condition got worse and worse and worse. We were doing our best to keep up, but it was consuming him. It was literal chaos, bewildering. We were in and out of the ER trying to manage the pain, and somewhere along the way, he had a stroke. We had no idea. He mentioned his vision was blurry, but he was the kind of person who compensated so quickly for something that I had no idea how bad it was. I don't know if he did and wasn't just complaining, but I had no clue that he was suffering so bad. The tumors had finally taken over his body, and the pain became so bad that he could barely stand it anymore. The effects of the stroke were finally starting to show, and I felt completely helpless. I didn't know what to do. It all happened so fast. One night, his pain took total control. He couldn't bear it anymore. He sat on the bed, a shell of his former self, overcome with agony. We would find out later that the tumors were in every organ, but also in his bones, and a tumor was blocking his intestines. They said it was comparable to being in active labor 24-7. I told him I had to call an ambulance, but he refused. He did not want to go to the hospital. To him, hospital equaled hospice, and he refused to go. He did not want to be sick, and he did not want to die. As strange as it sounds, I was torn about what to do. I knew he had to go, but I was also trying to respect him and how he felt about it. I was also trying to justify keeping him home, flashing back to just a few days before when he was feeling better. Maybe he just needed a pain pill, maybe a heating pad. Maybe if he just sat up or laid down, it would help. After all, there was no way the worst could be happening. But as he continued to ache, I couldn't stand by and wish for him to feel better. I told him again that I needed to call for an ambulance, and again he said no. I told him we had to, and he asked to give me, asked for me to give him 10 more minutes. I gave him 10 more minutes for two hours, and finally I told him he couldn't do it anymore, and he didn't have to hurt. I was calling. He looked me straight in the face and told me if I did that he would never forgive me. My heart broke. I loved this man. I mean, I really, really loved him. He was my entire life. He was my person. He was my everything. He was the keeper of my stories, my confidant, and the person I made memories with. And he was going to die. And worse yet, he was going to die hating me. Because I called. As the phone rang, I consciously thought to myself that if the dispatcher who answers the phone is a jerk, I'm going to lose it. I'm a 911 police and fire dispatcher myself. I know we get busy. I know we had to separate ourselves from the calls, but I just knew that the person on the other line was going to dictate my entire night. 
because I was on the edge of a breakdown and how this person treated me was going to determine if I had one that night or not. I was already so tired of people not being able to help. I just needed somebody, anybody to help him. When the dispatcher answered, I answered the questions, name, address, phone number. And then he said, my name is Jeff. Tell me exactly what happened. My husband has stage four pancreatic cancer. He recently had a stroke and is now in a great amount of pain. The tumors are everywhere in his arms, his legs, his back, his shoulders, and down his spine. No question, no follow-up. Jeff's voice changed. He wasn't robotic. He knew there was nothing he could do, but his voice changed. I can still hear it. It was surrounded by compassion. His tone was dripping in comfort. He didn't have to say, I'm sorry, or that's awful. All he said was all right, but there was something in the way that he said it. That all right to me translated to, I feel your pain. I'm sorry your husband is suffering. I'm sorry your family is going through this. I hate this for you. I wish I could fix this. I'm here for you all at the same time. That small change in his voice told me everything that he wanted to say and exuded compassion, something I so desperately needed at that point. Things that happen during a crisis are burned into your memory. I've told you before, I remember the look on the doctor's face when they told me he had a tumor. I remember the tears from the nurse who cared for him the night he died. I remember the pink straw, and I remember the sound of Jeff's voice. Jeff didn't do anything grandiose that night. He didn't save Chad's life. We didn't do CPR. We didn't do first aid. But while he talked to me and got Chad help, Jeff was comforting, reassuring. And by doing that, he dictated my mindset, which allowed me to be clear-headed, calm, and able to better communicate with the doctors when we got to the hospital. We do not think of dispatchers as heroes, but that night Jeff was mine. He was that calm voice in the dark who eased the chaos as best he could and who guided me through the biggest crisis I've experienced. It's never left me. And when I was in training one day at his department, I had to meet him. Lots of hugs, some kind words from a quiet man, and some closure to an awful story. He inspired me to be better at my job, but moreover, he's reminded me how free just being kind is. And not only did he inspire me to be better, he inspired me to retell this story in a training setting so that dispatchers up and down the state of Idaho can learn from his example. Because of Jeff, I created a class about compassion in the 911 center, and I play our telephone call. I've heard it easily a hundred times now, and every time I hear the change in this voice, that small, tiny inflection that for a brief moment made everything all right. Sometimes it's not the big things. Sometimes it's simple compassion. Jeff and I are friends now, good friends, family. Maybe it was trauma bonding. I don't know. I thought I would try to avoid him because I was afraid it would bring up bad memories of a hard time. But in all actuality, seeing Jeff or talking to him just reminds me that, yes, there is still goodness in this world. Goodness in people that comes when you least expect it. I hope you never have to call for help. But if you do, I hope you're as lucky as I am and find yourself a Jeff. What do you think? That is really cool. You know, I'll tell you, dispatchers, they 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 are kind of a, a special breed. <laughs> you know, some sometimes yeah, you absolutely. sometimes you get ones that are are, you know, hit or miss, you know, but for the most part, every time that I've ever had to uh, make a call, it's always been the dispatchers right there on that front line. And it's really, you know, they, they really do a great service to say the least. And a lot of them are, are very unsung, you know, that most people don't even think about the person that they talk to on that other line uh, or on the other end of the line. They're more thinking about the, uh, the police officer that showed up or the ambulance that showed up or whatever. So Absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's 
a lot of these guys don't get enough credit and these men and women for what they do. They are your first line of response. And honestly, how they respond can totally make or break the person on the other end of the line that's making that phone call. And so it's so important that they have the right attitude. And, you know, they don't. They don't get enough credit. They're the ones that are getting the person there to you, the police officer or the paramedic, um, you know, the ambulance that's going to help you with your situation. And they're your front line. And it's really important for those people to have the kind of attitude that Jeff did. And so many do. I've had to call. I've had instances where I've had to call accident scenes and things like that before. And I've got to be honest, I've never had a bad experience. And I'm so thankful and grateful for that. Because if I had a person on the phone answer the phone and act like, you know, uh, I was troubling them or act like maybe, uh, you know, it just wasn't worth their time. I don't know how I would have responded in a situation like that. You know, would I have hung up and tried to do something for the person myself, even though I have some medical training, but I knew I wasn't qualified for the injury that I was calling in on? Yeah, I hate to think that, right? But, you know, in the spur of the moment, decisions being made, you want that compassionate line on the end of the voice, or or voice rather, at the end of the line. You want that person that's going to be supportive to you. And and, and these guys don't get enough credit for what they do. And you know what? In all honesty, they don't get paid a whole lot for what they do either in most cases. Absolutely. (laughs) They they, kind of walk away poor, a lot of them, you know, really, to be honest with you. Yeah, so any recognition we can give to those guys, they deserve it. Yeah. Uh, furry heroes. An Argentinian dog named Tony, who refused to leave his unconscious owner's side, has become an unwitting social media star after pictures of him were shared online. Jesus Hueche fell six feet from the tree he was pruning outside his home in Bahia Blanca, cracking his head on the pavement below. Luckily, his neighbors noticed and called an ambulance. But while he waited, his dog never left his side. Mr. Hueche sustained slight skull trauma, according to the Defense of Civil, the Argentinian Emergency Service. They fitted him with a neck brace, but when they tried to load their patient into an ambulance to take him to the hospital, Tony tried to climb in inside with him, the organization said on its Facebook page. Eventually, they managed to keep Tony clear and transport Mr. Hueche to the hospital, where he was treated for minor injuries and discharged on the same day. He goes everywhere with me and lies in my bed until my wife kicks him out, Mr. Hueche told Argentinian radio station La Bourgeoisie 24. One day we saw him on the street and adopted him, gave him love, food, and he's part of our family. For me, he's like a son. And then they have a bunch of pictures of this dog. And it's just another example of a dog that wouldn't leave their owner's side, like the loyalty that this animal showed in, you know, the love and the pictures of the dog laying on the guy's chest. It's just so cute. It's so awesome to see. Um, that's my happiness homework for this week. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, yeah, another story of a dog who shows loyalty. What do you think? Oh, I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> no no yeah. doubt about it. It's great. I love reading stories about that. That one was kind of a short one, but that's okay. I needed a breather after the last couple <laughs> long ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So those crazy kids, this story is about a little girl who started her own company. It's not a really new story, but I thought it was very interesting, so I wanted to share it. Uh, If your child fears the dark, needs inspiration, or has a difficult time making friends, it may be time 
to send in a member of the guard, G-A-R-D, as in the Guardian Angel Rainbow Division. The guard is made up of seven plush dolls with different nationalities, personalities, and specialties that are all part of the Custard and Jelly doll collection. Each Guardian Angel was created by L.A.'s 11-year-old, Allie Marlow, to provide comfort to other children who want to hug or hold something to feel safe and secure. A child can pick a doll that represents the type of angel they feel they need, and each doll comes with a story about how she earned her wings. Children can carry their guardian angels with them to school or when traveling by using a clip to attach the doll to a backpack. Allie started the company with the help of her parents, who were inspired by their daughter's creative drawings of her own guardian angel, her grandfather. My mom always said my grandpa was looking over me, so I drew lots of angels representing my family and friends, said Allie. Many parents look to harness a sport, music, or acting talent with their kids, but Allie's mom saw a business idea and involved her child in the process. Allie didn't want to become just an entrepreneur. She wanted to take take her business to the next level and become a socialpreneur. It was Allie's idea to use a portion of the sales proceeds to go toward a charity that helps kids, said her mom, Julie Mollo. Each doll comes with a registration code. When a customer registers a doll, he or she helps a child in need by choosing the charity to which a portion of the sale will be donated. Each of the available charities were carefully selected by Allie to be a grade A quality and geared towards children. It appears Allie has found her own wings through her guardian angels. The custard and jelly concept is taking off. The dolls were picked by Time as one of the 15 smartest toys for young geniuses back in 2011, and plans are taking flight to expand the the brand. So, yeah, it is an older story, but I thought it was a really cool concept. And working with, you know, younger kids sometimes that have trauma, this is a way to be able to revise something like this. You know, a lot of times we do like stuffed animals or a little toy, something that they can hold on and, you know, they hold on and they talk to the animal. A lot of times they'll start to tell the animal rather than tell you what's happened to them regarding their personal trauma. So if they were abused, you know, they'll they'll open up to a teddy bear or a doll or a toy and, you know, sometimes even roll act or play act and you can, you can ascertain uh, some really horrible stories that you can ascertain what happened to the kid from how they're, you know, relating to the doll. They're, they're, they're using the doll as like a role to be able to share their feelings and their experiences. And, and something like this, I thought was a really ingenious way, uh, you know, to help kids feel more safe and secure, especially, you know, kids that are being placed in foster homes, even kids that have suffered trauma. I think that was an awesome idea. And the fact that they all have personalities that, you know, are geared toward maybe a certain injury or trauma or what that child is needing in their life, I thought that was really amazing. And and I thought that, at least personally speaking, it's something that I'm going to check into because I think that they'd be beneficial for some of the kids that sometimes I work with. So what do you think about that one? That is a really cool idea. I love it. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the name for it, too. The Guardian Angels uh, Rainbow Division. G-A-R-D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, happiness homework. Um, visit a pet, pet rescue or shelter and just go in and visit the animals. You know, just take an hour out of your day. Maybe take your kids. Go in and just give these animals some attention. So many of our rescues and shelters are over flooding. 
some of the ones around here are kill shelters, which absolutely, you know, makes me very, very sad. Um, and I know that it's emotionally hard sometimes, too. You go in and see them, and if you're like me, you want to take home every single animal that's there. But if we just take maybe an hour out of our week, even an hour a month, and go in and just, you know, spend some time with them, maybe if you have some extra food or toys or old bedding, blankets, we're always looking for blankets, pillows, stuff like that. Um, you know, spend some time with them, give them some attention because at least in the shelter that's nearest to here, I know these, these animals, they don't get the attention daily that they deserve, you know, and that they so desperately need. And also I, I saw an article that I thought was extremely cool. There's a shelter that actually accepts old chairs, old easy chairs, living room chairs, things like that. And in each of the cages, each dog that was there had its own easy chair that was donated from a member of the community. So instead of the dog just being in a stark cage, right, they built these really high cages, which have old living room chairs in them. And the dogs have little blankets so they can go into the chairs. That's where they lay. That's where they sleep. And then the, uh, the members of the facility cover them with the blankets. I thought that was amazing. So check and see if your local local shelter has something like that available too, where you can donate, you know, old chairs or, um, again, old bedding, blankets, pillows. They're usually always looking for things like that. So that's my happiness homework for the week. It's really easy, um, but it is emotionally <laughs> unsettling if you're like me. Like I said, you want to go and pick up every pet that's there. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It's something that, that won't cost you any money. And, you know, like I said, if you're able to donate some things that you have laying around the house, maybe you have a pet that passed away and you're not ready to get a new pet, you know, and you have some sweaters or toys that you're willing to part with or some leftover food, bring it down there. Let's see. Do you want to do, you want to do music or comedy? I'll let you pick. Uh, we can do the music here real quick. Sounds cool. Well, this is Easter weekend, right? And our show's going to be airing on Easter, isn't it? It is indeed. So, well, happy Easter, everybody. So, um, okay, so the studio got licensing to do music on YouTube, right? Is that the way I get it? Uh, on the station, yeah. On the station, right. So, so to celebrate that, we're going to go back to our old format for maybe a couple weeks, maybe forever. We'll see. I'm still not getting a lot of original music submissions. I'm still going to use all of Pat Carr's uh, music for the introductions and for the exits. Um, but for, you know, Mamma Mia and things my dad says, we're going to be using the clips that we used to use, the Sanford and Son, the Connie Francis. And so for the next couple of weeks, anyway, we're going to go back to the old format and play commercial music. And this one we played before on a previous episode, and I just love it. So I'm going to have Ira play it again. What do you think, Ira? I know you said you like this one, too. Yep, it's a good song. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Here you guys go. Enjoy.
The Lost Lonely Boys Heaven. It's a really cool tune. Really cool tune. It's got a nice groove to it. I love it. And I, I wanted to again this this is in celebration of Easter, right? We're gonna we're gonna go back to the old format here for a couple of weeks. And <laughs> um yeah, it's I'm just not getting the original music submissions that I hope to get that, that fit the programming, right? So this one, um, the guitarist I shared this before, Henry Garza actually wrote the lyrics as a prayer. When he was 18, his son died of SIDS, and the song is about the pain he felt of wanting to escape this world and see his son. So I thought it was a really cool song. It's one of my personal favorites, so I wanted to share all of that again with you guys. All right, let's talk about the uh, <laughs> the recipe for the week, the uh, King Shore recipe, the first Sunday of the month, homemade moisturizer for dry skin recipe. Um, I was listening to a comedy skit when I was trying to figure out what comedy skits to play this week, Ira, and I came across this guy, and I think he's amazing, and we haven't used him yet. Have you heard of Chad Prather? I have, yeah. That guy, I can listen to him 24-7 and laugh just the entire (laughs) time. He's just so on point. He's so, he's just, the, the manner in which he speaks, the way that he gets his point across, he just, He's hysterically funny. 
And there's so much truth, you know, from where I come from and where you come from politically and what he has to say. Truly, I love the guy. And I was listening to a comedy skit when he was talking about uh, guys and how they shouldn't wear flip-flops and dry feet. And, you know, going around town, I see so many people with dry, cracked skin. It's wintertime. So I wanted to share just a really quick homemade moisturizer uh, recipe that I found. And it involves uh, olive oil, coconut oil. And we know that both of those things are amazing for dry skin. They're very inexpensive. We know that olive oil rejuvenates the skin. It's packed with healthy fats and phenolic antioxidant, vitamin E, accompanied by squalene and oleic acids. They work to get rid of the free radicals. They repair the damage done uh, by skin exposure or dry, you know, wind exposure, things like that. So olive oil is always helpful. We talked about coconut oil last week. Um, it's very simple. It's a half cup of olive oil or almond or any other oil. Uh, a good quality carrier oil is what you're looking for, but you can use just regular, I use the extra virgin olive oil. A half cup of coconut oil, uh, one quarter cup of beeswax pellets, and you can order them right on Amazon. They're relatively inexpensive. And then you can choose to add 10 drops of essential oils. But at least in my experience, when I see a lot of guys running around town, guys that are working construction in the winter, they don't want to be girly and add all the scents to it. But they really need something. So you don't have to add the essential oils if you don't want to. I personally do because I like the scent. And all you do is you take the olive oil, coconut oil, and beeswax and um, combine them in a heat-proof jug or a large jar. Put the jug or jar in a saucepan, fill the pan with water until it comes to about three-quarters of the way up the jug or jar. Put it on low heat on the stove and just heat it and stir it until it's melted. It usually takes oh, about five minutes. And then empty out the hot water from the pan, replace it with cold water to the same level. Put the jar or jug back into the pan, and this helps to cool the moisturizer down more quickly. If you're impatient, it works very well. And then if you choose, add your essential oil to the jug or jar that you're using. You can use an electric whisk, whisk to quickly whip the ingredients into a moisturizer, or if you don't have a whisk, you can use a fork and give it a good stir. You may have to stir every five minutes, though, until the texture is thick and creamy. And then just store it in an airtight jar. That's all there is to it. It's very easy. It's very inexpensive. It's an alternative to a lot of the uh, products that you see out there in the supermarket. And for pennies on the dollar, you can make your own. And then, like I said, you know, you don't have to scent it. It can be something that's unscented if you prefer not to have the scented hand cream if you're a guy or just don't like scents. What do you think? You going to try it? I would give it a shot. I have some issues with dry skin myself, so I'd, I definitely would be uh, willing to give it a shot. But, you know, you mentioned flip-flops. I just have to toss in here. Flip-flops are <laughs> flip-flops are of the devil. They are from Satan himself. Uh, yeah, never wear flip-flops. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and that's it, too. We're coming into warm weather, and, you know, a lot of the kids, they'll still wear, like, flip-flops in the winter. You know, and I'm seeing a lot, of, you know, you know how I feel about feet. You know I don't like to see them. I don't want to see your stinky male feet with the dry, cracked heels, you know, and it's just, it's disgusting. You know, <laughs> get, have your wife or your girlfriend or your mom make this recipe for you, you know, and, and you know, just 
do something. You know, take care of your feet, take care of your hands. It's gross. You I would, don't want to see that. <laughs> you would not disagree. You would not disagree with my opinion that flip flops are of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> that and the hairy feet, man. When we've been there. I can't stand that. It's disgusting. <laughs> Positive affirmations in scripture. My strength will be renewed. This comes again because I've been receiving a lot of emails and correspondence this week about how people feel depleted. Uh, they feel like they're, they're sinking under the water and they can't, you know, find their way back to the surface. You know, it, it's been a period of, you know, if you're into all that astrology thing, I hear all these things about retrograde and all this other stuff. But just because of the energy shifts on our planet, because of the things that are going on worldwide, a lot of people are feeling like, you know, they're downtrodden, they're beaten, and, you know, they're, they're at that point where they're, they're trying and they're struggling to survive, but a lot of them are feeling at the point where they want to give up. You know, they're, they're just tired of struggling. They're tired of, you know, getting a little bit ahead and then having their car break down or getting a little bit ahead and then having the refrigerator break. So my strength will be renewed. Have faith. Say this over and over. Put it on a, a note card or put it on your phone. Say it over and over. It will make you feel better. Um, because you're, you're going to change your mindset. Your mind will start to believe that, and then your spirit will uplift. You'll, you'll have something to grasp onto. It will make you feel better. And then for the scripture, I chose Isaiah 4, 40, 31, which is one of my favorites. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So there you go. That's the positive affirmation in scripture for the week. We have left Comedy Corner and Things My Dad Says. How much time we got left, buddy? Uh, let me see here. I have trouble seeing that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got about, uh, way, about eight minutes. Eight minutes? Okay, that should be just enough time then. And, you know, everybody who knows us has been listening to the show. We've been doing this. Do you know it'll be two years in May? Yep. I heard that we've been doing the show. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it. And what, over 60,000 downloads you said on iTunes alone? Oh, no, no, no. It's it's upwards of 100,000 at this point. Get out. Are we? Why don't you keep me up on this stuff? We're up over 100,000? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know I'm going to be sharing that on my Facebook later. <laughs> 100,000 uh, downloads on iTunes alone? Yeah. Thank you so much for all of your support. We so appreciate this. This is... Just the reason we do this is for all of you. What I started to say was, um, personally speaking, especially in the course of this interview or this show, uh, I spoke to Ira on the break and I'm like, dude, I sound so like I, my thoughts are jumbled. I can't get a sentence out. I feel like I'm jumping around a little bit. I, I just want all of you to know, personally speaking, a lot of the reason for that is not that we're totally unprepared when I do this show. It takes Three, three to five hours to put together one of these episodes. It's a lot of work that entails. And I work full time. I have my business and I do this social media stuff too. And the podcast, Ira has, I don't know, probably like a hundred shows he's doing now. He's writing books. <laughs> Somewhere and around in there. <laughs> and we both have personal issues. Ira struggles with vision problems and I have some per personal physical health problems that I don't like to share with the public. But when you hear me stumble, when you hear me stutter, if sometimes it sounds like my thought pattern, you know, maybe changes midstream, the reason for that is because 
I still want to continue to do these shows. I feel that it helps a lot of people. I feel that it's uplifting to a lot of people. Uh, it makes people laugh. If we can affect one person a week, I mean, that would make me happy. But a lot of times because of the personal pain uh, that I have, you know, I'll get a twinge or I'll get a pain mid-sentence and it just totally brings me, you know, I, I lose my thought process. That's <laughs> what it is. And these shows are not edited. The positive podcasts that I do with Ira twice a month are not edited. It's raw. It's raw. See that? I did it again. <laughs> and um, it's off the cuff. And, and I think that it, it makes a difference, though. I think that the fact that we are so spur of the moment, I think that a lot of you are attracted to that because it makes us legitimate. You know, you, you understand that we're just average people like you trying to make a difference. Yep. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, so when we have these little slugs and, you know, when we, we switch and jump a little bit here and there, that's why it's because we're both doing what we can to make a difference uh, and have people think in a more positive, uplifting uh aspects you know but but just know that we've got stuff going on as well <laughs> so thanks for being so understanding and for a hundred thousand really yep crazy. Ooh, i'm so happy <laughs> 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 okay so having said that um comedy corner i know you're gonna love these guys oh yeah i like these guys a lot <laughs> <laughs> here you guys go enjoy I was on a cruise ship in 1998 that crashed. This was in the newspaper. It was off the coast of St. Martin. St. Martin is a beautiful island in the Caribbean. It has rocks around it, big rocks. We're gonna call them bad rocks. Everybody knows about these rocks. Christopher Columbus had a map, 1492. These are gonna be rocks right there. The captain came too close to the island and we hit the rocks. You know how like the Titanic hit an iceberg? We hit rocks. Well, why is he hitting rocks? Don't you have a rock finder thingy in the steering room? Shouldn't something flash? Rocks, rocks, rocks! My friend has a bass boat, he never hit a rock. The Titanic, I can understand, no technology. Some Irish sailor in front going, I can't say <laughs> It's just a lot of white is all it has. It's 1.30 in the morning, so I'm at the blackjack table. All of a sudden, I start to go like this. And I said, not screaming or anything, hey, you know, we're sinking. Can I get a shot of tequila over here? And everybody got mad at me. They're like, oh, you're trying to scare us. What, did I walk in here like this? Oh, oh, blackjack and sanctuary. Then the captain comes on, and the captain is a Norwegian gentleman. Norwegians have a great sailing tradition dating back to the time of the Vikings. Except I got the guy that hit rocks. And the captain comes on and goes, Hello, my name is Carlton Houston. Oh good, Lawrence Welk is driving the boat, that's why we crashed. I want you to know that the ship is indeed taking on a little water. You mean we're sinking? A guy bringing on a case of Evian, that's taking on a little water. There's half a million gallons on deck one, I'm on deck two, that's where Shelly Winters bought it in the Poseidon Adventure. Time for me to go. People were very calm, considerate. 
There's always idiots, though. One guy's running around. It's like the Titanic. It's like the Titanic. We're in the Caribbean. The water's 85 degrees. Jump on my back. I'll take you to Miami. John's in trouble again. coming up. This is the truth. I, I am widowed and it, you know, it's a difficult time. And about four years after being widowed, my girlfriends think they're going to help me move on. They signed me up for online dating. Now, this is either going to be the best material of my career or the saddest thing I've ever been through in my life. They signed me up for Match.com. That was a terrible thing. Christian Mingle, which there's some mingling on there that's not too Christian. I just thought I'd say it. And then there's uh, plenty of fish. That's a good one. Plenty of fish in the ocean, fish in the sea, something about fish. Actually, the whole thing has nothing to do about fish. And I found that out the hard way because I love to fish. And so I was trying to strike up a conversation with one fella, and I asked him what kind of lure does he use. Yeah, he sent me the picture. I wrote him back and said, you ain't gonna catch nothing with that. Because <laughs> I was trying to fly fish, I'm just saying. I don't know what y'all are thinking of, you nasty people. So what was the other? Oh, here's the best one they signed me up for, ourtime.com, which really means you got little time left at all. And the, the faces on OurTime.com look a whole lot like the pictures on Ancestry.com. It's just beautiful. One guy on the OurTime.com, I'm not kidding, he had his oxygen tube under his nose. That's the picture online. He doesn't need a date. He needs a hospital, for heaven's sakes. Look, I'm not prejudiced. If you got to take a hoof every now and then, you go right ahead. But if you can't move that long enough to have your picture made, you're in trouble. I ain't going out with you. I'm liable to kill him. I mean, like stepping on his tube or something. Man, this is a nasty crowd. I'm praying for y'all. Listen, it's just pitiful out there. I don't know how girls find dates these days. I'm not kidding. I got on, on our time, and there was two guys on there that looked like my grandfather. And because here's the problem. The people my age are looking for a woman about 30 years old. They want a woman about 25 years younger because that's who they're going to need to push their wheelchair uphill. <laughs> I love that lady. Great. That was Sandra Pierce. You love her? I love her. She's great. <laughs> And I know you love John Panette. That's why I actually searched for that clip for you for this week. I like, I know he likes him. He is absolutely <laughs> one of my all-time favorites, to say the least. I love him. <laughs> He's amazing. So everybody, yeah, if you haven't checked out Chad Prather, check out that guy's stuff. You will roar 24-7. You really will. He's amazing. Things my dad says. I'll make it real quick and sweet. Bona Pesca. Happy Easter, everybody. Enjoy your holiday. Enjoy your time with your family, your friends, your loved ones. Enjoy a good meal. 
If you don't celebrate, have a happy Sunday. But thanks for listening. Thanks for all that you do, Ira. I really appreciate you. And have a good week. We'll see you here in another couple of weeks. Sounds great, Maggie. Thank you for everything that you do. Everybody out there, have a great week. Happy Easter. And we will talk to you again real soon. Hello, world. Here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy.